Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Uh, my name is Nancy uh, Young Mossbach. I think I know about half of the folks in the room. Uh, but for those of you I don't know, welcome to the Museum of Chinese in America. And we want to welcome you home, as we always say to anyone. Uh, we want to encourage you also to visit the exhibits upstairs. We'll leave them open um, extra long till 9 o'clock tonight. Uh, two fabulous current exhibits on Chinese medicine and the introduction of Chinese medicine in this country. One is an apothecary in John Day, Oregon in the late 19th century. Uh, so a wonderful exhibit, and then one that we've curated on the different components of how art, the history of Chinese medicine, and community can converge. Um, but you're all here to listen to Scott, and he dressed up for us, he said. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, he's actually dressing up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're so excited to present this uh, in partnership with the Na National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and they are recording this uh, for their reproduction, and we are as well. Uh, but as I said, prolific writer Scott, but beyond that, what amazes me most about his work, and I think we've all experienced it, is the way he's able to go into deep resources that many people don't have access to. Um, the one magnificent fact that you shared with us is how you thought about looking at some of the history of Chinese immigration of specific individuals. We always look back at the documents that they um, came in with, but he told us, look at the documents they went out with because that's when the interrogation and the questions were asked, and that's when the information could be found and sourced. So that detective work has made Scott really just, um, as I mentioned in the review, uh, the Chinese-American sublime. He's brought to us some stories, and the untold stories, and really in the making of this country. And personally, I'm so indebted to you for all the hard work that you've done that we haven't been able to do, um, but we're able to feature it here today and thank you for this book, which is not only intriguing, um, but wildly well-researched, and one that I had never heard of before. Um, so I say that humbly as uh, the president of the museum. But Scott has a presentation. We'll then open it up for questions, um, and we will let him moderate that, because many of you are friends and family. The non-friends and family have the questions first. Because <laughs> there will be no softballs at this session. Without further ado, thank you for coming. Please stay and visit the museum. Come back and Scott Sullivan. Can I have a videotape of that introduction? <laughs> well, this feels like old home week here. Um, not to put too fine a point on it, but not everybody here is related to me, although a lot of people are. Um, and others are people from various times in my life. Um, elementary school is represented here, high school is represented here, my years in China, college is represented here. It's kind of, this is your life, Scott Seligman. That's why I love coming to New York. Um, and I want to thank Nancy, um, and I want to thank the, uh, not only MOCA, but also the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and Margot Landman in particular, um, for arranging this. And, um, um, I think this is my fourth appearance here at MOCA. There were three books, but we also did the genealogy conference, right? It always feels like I'm coming home. Well, I had a great time uh, writing and researching this book, and I want to tell you a little bit about it. I'll talk for about 20 minutes or so, and then I'll be very happy to take questions. 
Uh, but I want to begin with a disclaimer. And it starts here. This is my high school yearbook entry. <laughs> and I put it up not just to demonstrate the ravages of old age and the before and after picture, um, but also to make a point. Um, you see that thing sort of outlined in the oval on the bottom about Scott planning to become a lawyer? That, that never happened. Uh, I think once my father saw how I struggled with biology and chemistry and gave up on the idea that I was going to be a doctor, the next best thing in his mind was that I'd be a lawyer. And apparently in 1969, I agreed with him. Um, but I never went to law school. And I, say, and I say this to point out how odd it is that I actually wound up writing a book that was in large part about constitutional law. Um, I assure you I never set out to do that, and I'll tell you how it happened. But first, a special plea to any attorneys in the audience, and since this is New York, it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that you're here and that you know who you are, um, please be kind to me during the question and answer session, bearing in mind that I did not pass the bar, okay? Well, if you've read any of my books, uh, the chances are it's one of the ones about early Chinese Americans. This is the fourth in that series. Altogether, I spent about eight years living in Asia, in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and China. And when I returned from my last tour in China uh, in the late 1990s, I got very interested in the history of Chinese who came to the United States. It was a, a, a no-brainer for me. I was an American history major. I had come back and spent all that time in China. I liked doing research. I'm a genealogist. And I kind of threw it all together in, um, and started looking at um, early Chinese American history. And I discovered it was an underserved area that not a great deal of serious work had been done on it. And what had been done was mostly sensational. You know, the great Tong Wars of, um, uh, of New York and San Francisco, things like that. And um, so I, I, wanted to, um, I wanted to take a sort of a cold, more intellectual and more objective look at uh, the story of the Chinese in the United States. And that's kind of what got me interested in this. And three books followed. The first one was, uh, the first two actually were biographies. Uh, Three Tough Chinamen was the first one. That gave me the courage to attack a more important figure, Wang Qingfu. That was in the second one, the first Chinese-American. And then the last one, uh, which launched here in Mocha, actually, uh, was Tong Wars. That was the story of the, um, the early uh, New York City uh, Tong Wars, the turn of the 20th century. And I found my way to the third degree while Tong Wars was actually in production. I hate to be idle, so I set about looking for a new topic. And um, since I like to write um, narrative nonfiction, historical nonfiction, um, I turned to my favorite source for book ideas, which are essentially old newspapers. They're a wonderful source. They're just great to read, and you get all sorts of ideas from them. And the Library of Congress, in particular, has a website called Chronicling America. And it is nothing more or less than a vast repository of old American newspapers that have been scanned and uh, put through optical character recognition so you can do keyword searches on them. And this is a fabulous tool. I can't, I can't praise it enough because it allows research that simply was impossible 20 years ago. Uh, I have found articles in my, some of my previous books. I found thousands of articles about events that may have happened here in New York. I found them in Iowa. I found them in, in, in Kansas. And these are things that I could never possibly have found. Uh, even it's sitting at the Library of Congress in front of a microfilm reader, I'd be going for 20 years and I never would have found these because I wouldn't know what I was looking for. But with keyword searches and with this technology, you can really do comprehensive research that was never possible before. This isn't the only site. There's sister sites as well. But this one's available and free and, and wonderful to use. It goes up to 1924 right now, but they're, they're expanding it. And so, all right, so I was on the lookout for a new topic. 
I had just written a book about China, China, uh, crime, Chinese crime in America, the underworld. So on a whim, I decided to do a search for two terms, Chinese and murder. <laughs> and one of the first hits was a lead, the lead story in a 1919 edition of a newspaper that was called the Washington Times. It's not the same one by that name today. This is an old uh, broadsheet that stopped publishing, I think, in the 40s. And it said that, it said that um, um, the internationally famous triple Chinese murder mystery, which has been agitating two continents, had been uh, solved. Well, I wasn't going to let that go by. I mean, that was pretty damn interesting. So I did more research on it. I just put more keywords in and just pulled more, more sources on it. And I learned that three Chinese diplomats in the year 1919 had been found shot to death in Washington, DC. I didn't know anybody who'd ever heard this story. I certainly had never heard it. Um, and it turns out it was just a couple of blocks from where I used to live in Washington, um, just on uh, Calorama Road right off of Connecticut Avenue, if you know DC. And the police were pretty sure that they had cracked the case. All right, so I discovered that the three men were overseeing a scholarship program. Now, some of you, um, if you know anything about Chinese American history, you know about the Boxer Indemnities. The Boxer, the Boxer Rebellion was over. The Chinese owned, inde owned indemnities to several countries, including the United States. I think our, our total was about $25 million. And the Chinese repaid it, paid, paid it to the United States until it was discovered that they had overpaid us. We didn't actually have uh, damages in that amount. And so the Chinese, wanted, the Chinese government wanted some of the money back. And um, Theodore Roosevelt was willing to give it back to them on the condition that it be spent for um, the education of Chinese students. And that's actually how Tsinghua University was founded in China, with Chinese money that was repatriated from the United States. But the money also went to educate a lot of Chinese students in the United States. And in about 1911, there were something like two, 300 Chinese students studying here. And the government decided that they needed to set up an office here in Washington, DC to oversee the program, distribute the scholarship money, et cetera. And they, they found a, a perfect choice to run the program, a man by the name of Theodore Wong. Theodore Ting Wong was Shanghainese. He was the top man. He was a true bicultural, fluent in English, the first Chinese actually to study uh, at the University of Virginia. Um, he'd been in Washington, DC, came in 1911. And in 1915, he had a very large family, left about, I think, six children back in, uh, in China and a wife. And he went back in 1915 for an R&R &R and then sailed back to the United States in 1916, which is really where the story begins. When he came back to America, he sailed with two young men, one of whom was going to work with him in the, um, uh, Benson Wu was going to work with him in the, um, in, the, in the mission. And he was a scholarship student. He was also studying at George Washington University. And the two men were going to be joined by a man who was already in, in uh, Washington by the name of Xie, Xie Changxi. So these were the three men who were murdered. These are the three men who were working on the, uh, the Chinese educational mission, as it was called. But another young man sailed to the United States with Theodore Wong, and his name was, was Wan. Uh, Xiang Sun Wan was the, this is, these are Shanghainese pronunciations. They were, all these men were from Shanghai. Huan Xiangsheng in Mandarin, if you, if you want to do the Mandarin. And he was um, interesting. He was also going to study in the United States, but he was not a Boxer Indemnity Scholarship student. His mother was another member of Theodore Wong's congregation, in uh, the Episcopal congregation in Shanghai. And so he'd known Theodore Wong his entire life. He was apparently something of a ne'er-do-well. His father had died when he was very young, but the family had a lot of money. And Theodore Wong was asked by his mother to kind of keep an eye on him in the United States. So he was the third man who sailed over with them. 
One uh, started out in Ohio and then he moved to New York City and his life here was not a happy one. He was living up in Morningside Heights. Um, he claimed uh, to be a student at Columbia, but Columbia University today has no record that he ever studied there. Um, mom sent him tuition money from China, which he apparently invested in a Brooklyn theater, which went belly up about three weeks after he put all the money into it. So he was fairly um, broke. And worse than that, this is, the, think about this, this is 1918, 1919, he caught the great influenza, the Spanish flu, which killed 30,000 people in New York. It didn't kill him, but it, it damn near did. And he was left with really horrible gastric problems that lasted for many months after that. And I'll tell you that because it becomes important later on. Um, so in January of 1919, Juan, who had sailed over with Mr. Wu, the second guy on the previous slide, he got a phone call, he got, he got a, a cable from Mr. Wu, a letter, that said, why don't you come down to Washington and recuperate? You can stay here at the mission house with us and we'll take care of you since you're not studying anyway. So that's what happened. In late January, he went to Washington and he stayed at the China Educational Mission, which is a house on Calorama Road um, that's still standing. Now, if you know where the Chinese embassy was up until a few years ago in Washington, this is about 500 feet from that, that building. But that wasn't the Chinese embassy back then. The Chinese embassy was actually on 19th Street. Also walkable, all of these places were walkable. These three men were diplomats, but they weren't domiciled at the embassy. They, they rented this house on Calorama Road. This was the Chinese educational mission. They lived here and they worked here together. And that's, um, that's where the, the story happens. Juan stayed for about three days and said he was going back to, Washington, uh, to New York. But he didn't actually go back to New York. He checked into a hotel near Union Station and two days later, he was seen back at the mission house by a young man named Li Gang Kang Li, who was a doctor. He was also studying at um, George Washington University. Kang Li came knocking on the door. He wanted to see Theodore Wang. And Wang, who was supposed to be back in New York, answered the door, a crack, opened it, said, nobody's home, and slammed the door on him. It was very unusual behavior, and he wasn't even supposed to be there. So uh, Li Gang kind of thought about it for a day or two, and then he realized by two days later that the two, his two classmates who were students at GW who were working in the mission hadn't shown up for class. And so he went back to the mission house again, and now he discovered that the newspapers had piled up for a couple of days, the, the cleaning, the laundry was out in the front, the milk had piled up, and, and nobody seemed to be in charge of taking it in. So there was a window that was slightly ajar, and he crawled into it, and... Um, he discovered the dead body of Theodore Wong behind the front door. Called the police in. The police did a, a, a total check of the premises. and They discovered the other two men were also dead. They were in the basement. All three men had been shot to death. Well, Lee told the police about this. They didn't, the police had no idea who would have done this. Theodore Wong didn't seem to have any enemies. And um, uh, he did, so the police interrogated um, uh, Dr. Lee here. And, um, he mentioned this odd interaction he'd had two days earlier with this guy Juan from New York, and that was the only lead they had. So they sent a couple of detectives up to New York. This is West 112th Street. That's the Cathedral of St. John the Divine under construction, so you get some sense of when that was. And um, Juan lived about here, I think it was this building. And they sent a couple of detectives in who showed up guns blaring. They searched his room without a warrant, um, they were very aggressive and very abusive to him. They, they told him to produce his gun. Well, he didn't have a gun. Uh, and finally, when they realized he wasn't a threat, they calmed down a little bit, and they discussed with him the fact that these men had been murdered and that they thought he could help them solve the mystery if he would only come back to Washington with them. 
Nobody mentioned that he was under no compulsion to come back to Washington, which he wasn't. He was in New York. Nobody mentioned that anything he said could be held against him in a court of law, that he didn't have to say anything, that he could have an attorney. Nothing of this like this was said. But they put pressure on him to go back to Washington, and he didn't know any better, so he decided to go back with them. And once he got back to Washington, um, they, um, they, uh, they put him in a hotel. He was still ill. His, his stomach was really, really bothering him. But they, they put him in a hotel, didn't tell anybody where he was, didn't register him in the hotel. And they kept him in a hotel room for seven days and nights, interrogating him to try to get him to confess to the murders, which he didn't do, by the way. And finally, they, they upped the ante on him. They brought him back to the house where the deaths had taken place, denied food, denied water, denied bathroom breaks, told him, denied sleep, told him that he only had to confess and everything, he'd get a hot meal and he could go to bed. And finally they broke him and he confessed to one of the murders. His story was that he had killed his friend Wu, but only after Wu had killed the other two men. And, uh, and there was a reason for it and there was a, the whole story that went with it. Well now the police had a confession and they could arrest him finally. They, they, technically he was not under arrest. These were his, um, oops, sorry, this, this was the Dewey Hotel, sorry, I slide behind. Um, and these are the men who interrogated him, the three detectives. Um, they did not physically abuse him so much as take advantage of the fact that he was already in discomfort and pain. So I don't, I don't want to get you the idea that, this was, that he, was, he was beaten, because he really wasn't. They did, um, they, were, uh, they did hurl some racial epithets at him, you know, that he was a cold-blooded Chinaman and things like that, but um, nothing, nothing really, no physical torture. Um, and finally, after several lies, he confessed and he said that he had killed his friend Wu after Wu had killed the other two men. So he was taken into custody. This was DC jail in 1919. The penalty for first degree murder in Washington DC in 1919 was still death by hanging. And actually the gallows were in the jailhouse. You could see them from your cell in case you forgot why you were there. Uh, and um, uh, at trial, uh, he recanted his confession. He said the only reason he had confessed was to get the police off his back because he was in such misery and such pain. But uh, the judge didn't throw it out. The judge allowed the jury to decide whether the confession was, was true or not. And um, on the top of the circumstantial evidence that they had against him, with the confession, he was convicted of first degree murder um, and was sentenced to death. So they appealed it. And in the appeal, um, the discussion in the appeal was of a Supreme Court precedent from the 1890s. And the judge in the appellate court, his reading of, of the situation was that he wasn't really, uh, that, the, that the trial judge had not made a mistake by leaving the confession in, because the only way legally he could have kept it out was if the police had made a promise or a threat to Juan, which had not happened. I mean, he was, he was abused in other ways, but they hadn't actually made a promise or a threat. So the appellate court plowed in right behind the uh, trial court, and Juan was on death row. They did make a pass, a play at, um, at the president. Excuse me, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not flipping the slides fast enough. This is an actual photograph taken at his trial. That's Juan over there, and that's one of his attorneys, and that's the prosecutor over here. This was on the Library of Congress website. I just had to download it. That's all I had to do. Um, Okay, so after he's convicted and after the appellate court um, sustains it, they went to President Harding 
and asked him to commute the sentence. And this was, and the they I'm talking about was a group of religious people who didn't believe in the death penalty. They didn't want him exonerated. They just wanted him commuted so he would serve his life in, his, his life in jail. And Harding um, wasn't interested in overruling courts. He didn't think that was the role of the president. And he threw them out of his office. So one is on death row. He's only got one option, which is essentially a Hail Mary pass to the Supreme Court, which is what he did. Um, but even that didn't look promising. The, um, the Supreme Court was under um, William Howard Taft, who had been president of the United States. After he was president, he became um, chief justice of the Supreme Court. And everybody said he liked this job a lot better than he liked being president. But it was a, um, a, 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 this was a court that was passive at best, if not hostile to civil liberties. Nobody really thought they would take the case, and nobody thought he'd get a good result out of this court. But they took the case. And, um, and, they, and, and uh, after they heard the oral arguments, Taft assigned um, the, uh, the task of writing the uh, opinion to a justice named Louis Brandeis. And um, Brandeis was, of course, the perfect person to do this. I think I have a Brandeis slide here. Yeah, I do. Um, he, was, he was a firebrand. He was a progressive. I mean, you probably know enough, a lot about Brandeis. Uh, he was the right guy to write the opinion. And initially, the vote was, um, uh, the vote was I think, um, three justices uh, were not going to support the, um, uh, throwing the confession out. But um, Brandeis's um, prose was so overwhelmingly beautiful that it became a unanimous decision. He went through 10 drafts of this damn decision before he finished it, and I saw them all at the National Archives. So the story was beginning to get very interesting. But um, now, now here we were at the Supreme Court, and we're talking about some real legal luminaries. We've got Brandeis, and we've got Scott Seligman, who, as I may have mentioned, is not a lawyer. <laughs> Um, so once you get into Supreme Court decisions, I get kind of scared. So I decided to bring in the big guns. And the first big gun I got was a young man named Josh Friedman who was working at the Obama White House. Uh, he's actually a cousin of a cousin of mine, so I don't think we're blood relatives. And Josh was very interested in this. And he sat with me while we went through the National Archives. We were handling the, the, um, the, uh, the same documents Brandeis had handled. Um, by the way, he worked for the functional White House, not the one today. Um, and um, Brandeis actually, after his 10 drafts, this is one of them here, um, uh, got, got the court to vote unanimously uh, to throw the, the, essentially throw the conviction out. And what, what Brandeis did in this decision was that he clarified the um, criteria, criterion for whether, whether, how you could throw a confession out in a federal court of law. And he said it's not about promises and it's not about threats. Um, there's really only one criterion, according to Brandeis in this decision, that, that governs whether a confession is acceptable in a federal court of law. Because remember, this is Washington, D.C., and it's a federal district, so federal courts were, were um, governed here. And the criterion is voluntariness, full stop. If the, the confession is voluntary, it's acceptable. If it's not voluntary, it's not acceptable. That was the principle that he articulated. And so um, they threw out his conviction. Um, and the uh, Justice Department was um, free to try him again without the confession, which it did. This is DC Supreme Court still standing. And um, they tried him again. And without the confession, it was all circumstantial evidence. And the jury was, was a hung jury, but most of them favored acquittal. They didn't give up. They tried him again, the Justice Department. They were bound and determined to convict him. And they got the exact same result the second time, a hung jury 
majority favoring acquittal. So they realized they couldn't get him. They sent him back to China. They, they, they set him free. He eventually went back to China. And if you want to know what happened to him back in China, just ask me in the Q&A and I'll, I'll tell you. It wasn't, it wasn't pretty. Um, OK, so um, after more than six years in jail, because this take a, took a long time, Juan is now free. That's Juan. That's his younger brother there. And that's one of his attorneys in the middle. So I figured I was pretty much done with this. Um, it was a good story. He got off in the end. You know, we could tie it up in a bow and make it go away, and everybody would be happy. And I thought I had the makings for a book. And then while we're sitting at the National Archives, Josh, this young attorney that I'm with, um, mentioned to me sort of almost offhand. He said, you know, Scott, there's a straight line between this case and the Miranda decision. I said, what? <laughs> and, and he discovered that the case was not only quoted, it was cited, but it was quoted in Miranda. Now, I had never found that. I was always Googling Xiang Sun Wan, but it turns out that Brandeis referred to it as Wan v. U.S. And excuse me, that's how, not Brandeis, but um, uh, uh, Warren, when he wrote the, the Miranda decision, referred to it that way. And I missed it. I just never found it. But Josh found it. So this was, the story continued. Um, it went so, and now I knew the story was going to go to 1965 with the Miranda decision. I found this thrilling, but also a little bit horrifying, um, because I signed up to write about a murder, okay? And here I am going through constitutional law. Because <laughs> I didn't mention it, I didn't go to law school. Well, Josh stayed with me until Obama decided to start pardoning people like mad at the end of his term. And all of a sudden, he was pulling all nighters and he disappeared. And I needed to understand how we got to Miranda from, from this case in the 1920s. So there was only really one other big gun to call, and that was my friend, the great Ira Belkin, who was sitting right there in the middle. Raise your hand, Ira. Okay. Ira is a professor at NYU um, in the law school. I, I know Ira since 1973 when I was studying Mandarin at Middlebury, and he was already studying classical Chinese. Um, and um, Ira was perfect for this because not only does he understand Chinese law, but he was a prosecutor. And he was very interested in this. And as he pointed out to me when we had our first discussion about it, this is an active issue even in China today, what the police should be doing and how they should be conducting interrogations. So I thought, great, I'm going to get Ira to write this book with me. Well, Ira didn't have time to write the book. Um, we talked about it for a long time. Um, he was very happy to be helpful, but he really didn't have time to do too much on it. So I said, all right, Ira, let's, let's do the next best thing. I want your best student. I want you to introduce your best student to me who can maybe do this research and can help me through it. And um, Ira did not hesitate. He um, suggested a young man named Eli Blood Patterson, who is right there in the back, whom I have never met in person until right now. <laughs> Eli, it's great to meet you. And um, Eli took my hand and shepherded me through the rest of this. He did the research. He didn't write it, but um, he, 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 he helped me do it, looked over what I wrote, blessed it, criticized it where it needed criticizing. So I, I regained some confidence that, that I wasn't making horrible mistakes in this thing. Um, and, um, uh, so, and then I read it in the end, and he blessed it. And so I was comfortable submitting it to the publisher. Well, Juan's case was over, but it continued to be, I guess you'd call it cause celebre. Um, and two things had to happen um, before it, was, it would apply to all the criminal defendants in the United States, this principle of law that only voluntary confessions could be admitted. One was that the Juan decision only implied, applied to the federal courts. 
And in order for it to be um, applied to the state courts, correct me if I'm wrong here, Eli, and, and don't leave before the Q&A is over. Um, um, that um, it had to, in order for that to happen, there was a process, I think it's called the, um, the, um, the incorporation doctrine, whereby various aspects of the Bill of Rights were found to apply to the state courts, because the Bill of Rights wasn't written, written for the states. And that was a process that went on over several decades, and this was one of the rights that had to be found to apply to the state courts. Um, and the other thing was that Brandeis, for all of his eloquence, didn't really give us much in the way of a definition of voluntariness. And so there was still a lot of debate in the judiciary as to what constituted voluntary behavior and what wasn't and uh, what would get a confession thrown out, what wouldn't. In other words, he hadn't really solved the problem. He had established the principle of law, but he hadn't really given us the way to implement it. And that's what essentially Juan, uh, the, 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 Warren, the, the Miranda decision did. Uh, we learned that Chief Justice Warren, he's here, right? Yeah, or Warren. Um, who wrote the opinion three, days later, three decades later after the Juan decision, borrowed liberally from the Juan decision. Here's the quote. A confession is voluntary in law if and only if it was in fact voluntarily made. Thank you for that, Brandeis. <laughs> um, but a confession obtained by compulsion must be excluded, whatever may have been the character of the compulsion and whether the compulsion was applied in a judicial proceeding or otherwise. And I think by otherwise he meant the police. So... Um, the, the way I like to say it is that, and here's the Miranda warning, that you will, if you've ever seen Law and Order or Law and Order Criminal Intent or Law and Order Special Victims Unit, you've heard this. We can all recite it right along with the detectives. Um, and um, what Miranda did, I, I think you can make an argument um, that the one decision was actually the more important decision of the two. Because the one decision established the basic principle of voluntariness. Miranda, I like to think, were sort of the implementing regulations for it. Ira may, may not agree with me on that. I'm not sure. I like to, I like to think so. Um, but what Miranda did was instead of outlawing nefarious police practices like promises and threats, it went in the other direction. It mandated what the police had to do positively to ensure that the confession was voluntary. Okay, well, there's one more piece of the story um, that I want to tell you before I conclude, and it actually starts with Theodore Wong. <clears throat> in my research, I couldn't find very much on Theodore Wong um, by Googling him until I found one website that gave me the Chinese character for his name, Huang Zuoting. And then I re-Googled him in Chinese, and that opened up a, a, a lot of information. There were several references to him, in particular, in a Chinese book called uh, Dongcheng Xijiu, um, East, East to West, I guess you'd call it, by a professor up in Boston named York Lo. And I read through the article in Chinese, and there were a couple of footnotes in it that were clearly articles about Theodore Wong's family. And I, really, and I realized I had to read them. I had to know, you know, who was this guy. Couldn't find him anywhere. Couldn't find him on WorldCat. Couldn't find him in any, in any library. So I wrote an email to Professor Lo, and I said, where did you find the articles? And he wrote me back, he said, Scott, the reason you can't find them is that they're not published. I found them through Theodore Wong's grandsons, and I'm copying them in on this email, and if they want to help you, I'm sure they'll send it to you, and they immediately did. One of them um, is in Hawaii, and one of them is in, um, in Chicago. And we corresponded for quite a while, and we talked about um, the case, and what they knew about the case, and what I had discovered about the case. I sent them some articles and stuff, too. And... Um, <clears throat> Then uh, one of them mentioned to me that Theodore Wong actually had a great-granddaughter who lived in Washington, D.C., and her name was Erica Ling, and she's an architect. So I looked her up on Facebook, and lo and behold, Erica Ling and I have a common friend on Facebook. 
So then I looked up her husband, Stephen Mink, and we have a different common friend on Facebook. And then I looked up their address, and they live three blocks from me in Washington. <laughs> so I contacted Erica. She couldn't have been nicer. I met Stephen and Erica. They've actually become very, very good friends of mine since then. And we shared information back and forth. And uh, in fact, here she is. That's Eric on the right. That's Stephen on the left. Uh, I'll tell you about him in a minute. And while I'm writing the book, um, I wrote a note to Eric. I said, you know, Erica, I don't have a photograph of, of, of Theodore Wong. Do you have one? And she said, you know, I don't. But she said, my cousin Wade does. His name is Wade Lou. He lives in San Francisco. Write him an email. I'm sure he'll send it to you. So I write up this email, introducing myself, telling him who I am, what I'm working on, that his cousin Erica suggested that I write him. And the letter I got back from the email by return mail was, Scott, we know each other. We, we served on the American Chamber of Commerce board in Beijing together in the 90s. And then as soon as I saw a picture of him, I said, oh my god, that's you? <laughs> so I think it's fair to say I've more or less been adopted by the family. And I think Erica's brother is here today. Alfred, are you here? That's Alfred right there. And his wife, Molly? Yep. And Alfred is a great-grandson of Theodore Wong, right? Got that right? Well, anyway, welcome to the family. Uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> so that's essentially the story about how a, a, a random search for Chinese and murder uh, led me to um, learn an awful lot about the law that I didn't know before, makes a bunch of new friends and uh, re-meets some old friends. Um, and it uh, turned into a book that it was not the book I set out to write, but um, it was a really enjoyable way to get there. The good news for any non-lawyers out there is that you're not going to have any trouble understanding this book. <laughs> you know, you may not be, this may not be the sort of thing you would normally read about constitutional law, but I promise you, if I can understand it, you can understand it. And there's no legalese in it, so I think uh, you shouldn't, shouldn't worry about that. So, okay, with that, I will stop here, as long as Eli doesn't leave and, lets me answer, and helps me answer the, the legal questions, if there are any. I'd love to take your questions. <clears throat> This is Mark. So who killed Theodore? Who killed Theodore Wong? Well, that was the same thing that my agent did when he threw the manuscript back at me and said, you didn't tell me who killed him. And I'm not going to try to sell this book until you do. Well, I have a theory about it. Obviously, it's a century later, and we don't really know who killed Theodore Wong. But I came to the conclusion that um, he essentially told the truth in the initial confession, that he had killed Wu and Wu had killed the other two men. And there were several reasons I believe that. Number one, what I didn't tell you is there was, a, there was something else that was going on on the side. The police discovered that a young Chinese man had showed up at, shown up at Riggs Bank opposite the White House with a $5,000 check drawn on the account of the Chinese educational mission that they were trying to cash. And they thought initially that it must have been Juan, but it wasn't Juan. It was actually Juan's brother. And um, this $5,000 check was Juan explained that he and Wu had been in cahoots in trying to steal the money. And that, but Wu had killed the other two men. Juan didn't have a grudge against these other two men. Wu did. They found, apparently found the check, and Wu was afraid he was going to get sent back to China in disgrace. So the two of them were both necessary for the plot. Wu didn't speak English well enough to do it. Juan was the guy who had the English, and he was going to fill out the check. So they were sort of in cahoots. Juan didn't have a motive to kill the other men, and Wu did. Plus, um, when Juan confessed, he was visibly, palpably relieved. In fact, he initially said, I'm not even going to hire a lawyer. I'll take my medicine. And it was only after um, he realized that they, his brother was also implicated 
that he decided he needed to defend himself. Because they were going to charge his brother with murder, too. And there was very little evidence that his brother had actually had been involved in it. So I think my best guess is that when Juan confessed to one of the murders, he was telling the truth, that I don't think he killed Theodore Juan. I think Wu did. And that's the best I can do 100 years later, you know? <laughs> And the consequence of Brandeis' decision, uh, were there any changes in these procedures? Well, um, the, um, there wasn't even a police manual, I think, until the 1930s that actually talked about what the police were supposed to do in situations like that. Um, as a consequence of Brandeis' decision, yes, there were changes in procedures, but they were really haphazard and, and hook or crook. The, the problem was that there wasn't clarity on what the police really could and couldn't do what, just by saying it had to be voluntary. So. Courts could find any number of reasons either to accept or reject a confession and claim that it was covered by the law. That's really why Miranda was necessary, because there was just too much, too much ability to, to find whatever you wanted to find in the law. Am I okay with that? I think the difference that I would say is that the Zongson Wan decision came, so it was a federal decision, so it applied to a very small number of cases. But um, I, looking, at the research that we did, we had a lot of different cases that are going on in state courts as well to start to look at this question of voluntariness. And uh, I think what you saw is that Brandeis, in addition to leading a line of cases that led ultimately to federal cases in Miranda, you see a lot of state courts starting to act differently. So it's not a direct consequence, but probably helped to lead and encourage activity that was already happening. That's right. And even, even when they weren't, even, even when the state courts were not obligated to, to, uh, to follow it, a, a number of them actually did. They absolutely were not obligated right. to follow the Johnson line, but right. probably it helps to have very clear cases. Yeah. I'm going to take it back to Dr. Wong. I just started reading this book this morning. Oh, I, thank you. I got through three quarters of it um, right before coming here. Wow. So I might have missed something, but I do have a Okay. <laughs> so, in the beginning, during his confession, he said that he was frightened and very upset at the murder of Dr. Wong. He was like really, clearly very distraught. Um, but then in the epilogue, which I skipped to, but before this, <laughs> um, he says that Wan was probably no fan of Dr. Wong. I think both of those are true. Okay. I, I think that Wan experienced Dr. Wong as something of a scold. Mm -hmm. His mother asked him to watch over him in America. I think Dr. Wong, some, sometimes Dr. Wong was uh, actually passing money to, on to Wong that his mother had sent him. And he had uh, ideas about how the money was supposed to be spent. And remember, Wong was the guy that invested in the theater in Brooklyn. He, wasn't, he was not a good steward of the money. But that didn't mean he didn't respect Wong. And it didn't mean he had known him since he was a child. Um, I, I, I guess I forgot to tell you a little about Dr. Wong's provenance, but his father was the first convert of the Episcopal missionaries, the American Episcopal missionaries in Shanghai. He was also the first Chinese deacon and the first Chinese priest in the Episcopal church. So, um, and Wan's mother um, was a member of that congregation. So Wan had known Dr. Wan since he was a child. And I don't think he loved him, but I think he respected him. And I think he was pretty upset when he saw the guy murdered in front of him. So I think we're still consistent there. I mean, I'm not sure everything in the book's consistent, but I think I'm okay on that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Amy? I'll take your bait. All right. So what happened to Juan after he got <laughs> <laughs> you, you noticed that, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Little technique I learned. Um, Juan went back in about 1930. He, um, he actually went back once to see his mom after he was freed and came back to the United States. Um, what was interesting, actually, Amy, was that 
The day he was freed from prison, he was out of status. He had come in as a student. And this was the, still the Chinese exclusion period, so he was no longer a student, and he sure as hell wasn't a businessman, and he wasn't a diplomat. So he was technically out of status, and in order to stay in the United States, he had to figure out a way to be in status. And what he did was he set up a company, incorporated in Delaware. Um, and he, he, was, um, he was in the candy business. And there's something, there's, a, there's actually an ad in the book for Juan's Mandarin Creams. This was the candy that he manufactured in, in Washington, D.C. Um, it was full of nuts and sugar, but somehow it was good for reducing weight. I've never figured that one out. Um, he did it for a couple of years and kind of tired of it or something. He decided he was, he was going to go back to China. So he did. In about 1930, he went back. Um, he continued to write letters to one of his attorneys, Charles Fahey, who later became Solicitor General of the United States, and hence his papers, God bless him, were preserved. And I went to the Library of Congress, and Charles Fahey, God bless him, was a pack rat. <laughs> And there were files on Juan, just on the Juan case, including correspondence between him and Juan up until the early 1950s. So Juan talked about his life up until the early 1950s. He had, um, he had very good English because of all the time in the United States. He actually got a job working for the Shanghai Municipal Government in the foreign affairs section because they dealt with foreigners. But um, in 1949, when the nationalist government fell and, and they retreated to Taiwan, he didn't go to Taiwan. So when the communists took over, he was like on the enemies list because he'd worked for the nationalists. So in the early 50s, one of their very first campaigns of the communists was the campaign against counter-revolutionaries. And he was branded a counter-revolutionary. He was sent to a labor camp in Jiangsu province. And um, this part I know, from this, the letters stopped right before this happened. This part I know from a friend who did a little investigating in Shanghai. The last we know of him, um, he was 70 years old. It was the eve of the Cultural Revolution, and he was transferred back to Shanghai, not to be freed, but to be imprisoned in the city for health reasons. And I, I'm not sure, but I believe he died in jail in Shanghai. So the idea to go back to China turned out not to be very good for him. And for the people who say, but Scott, you've written a book about somebody who got away with murder, I would say, you know, six years in the pen in DC, plus what he went through in China, I wouldn't say he got away with much. I think you know, he, he kind of got, got, got what he deserved there. It was sad. You're all ask out? No, I'm Scott. I'll all right. So you meet the descendants, and a lot of Chinese um, families and a lot of immigrant families hide the past quite a bit. I don't know if you addressed it when I stepped out. Um, but how open, comparatively, did you find the descendants, and how much did, were they informed about the story? Um, in the case of Theodore Wong's descendants, completely open and very cooperative with me. They were very happy that I was, that I was going through this. And I think I told um, some of the elder men some things that they hadn't completely known. I, I, that may or still not, may not be true, but at least they were in the news, the news articles. I, found, I probably found 2,000 articles about this case altogether by going through the various websites that have, have articles there. In the case of Wan, his, um, uh, one of his daughters is alive and wanted nothing to do with this. And I'm not even sure she knows what happened to him in the United States. I think she just knows what happened to him in China, and it was not a very comfortable memory for her. So she didn't want to be involved in it. Um, and we weren't able to do that. So you know, I did what I could. And I didn't find descendants of the other, of the, well, the other two didn't have descendants. The, they were young single men. But I didn't find information about their families. But by and large, Theodore Wong's family, I thought, was extremely open and cooperative. And, and, and they've kind of adopted me. I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm real glad to be part of that family. 
Kevin. This is just something about you and the writing I'm just curious about. You just talked about the thousands of documents, and this has been going on for years. Do you have a warehouse? See, Evan, this is this is twentieth century you're thinking. Help you. You're going to help me with what I need to do. With that. I'm mostly dealing with scans on the computer. I don't have a lot of paper files on this, unless it's a document I had to order from an archive and well, would they send me copies. <clears throat> Never did. Just saved them, saved them as PDF files. Yeah. So they really they'll fit on a flash drive, which is well, kind of the way the future. It's <laughs> 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 a big flash drive. Why is the third degree as the title? Well, the third degree actually, there's a whole chapter on the origin of that term. It it, it only dates to about 1890s, not very much earlier than that. And um, the th you know what the expression means, the the third degree. Um, and um, there's there are different. There was debate about what, what but the origin of it. Um, some people thought that it was um, related to um, uh, the Masonic orders, because if you want to be a third degree Mason, there's a certain amount of interrogation that goes with it. But others were talking about it as degrees of heat, and, uh, and, that, and, and what that meant was um, trying to sweat a confession out of somebody by turning up the temperature on it. And there were all sorts of stories about real abuses by the police, um, releasing red ants into a cell of somebody after they had taken his clothes off, making somebody lie down on a cold, um, a cold stone floor for three days, um, uh, blocking light, blocking heat, tapping a, a piece of glass um, uh, you know, rhythmically and stuff, anything to kind of get these people to, uh, to confess. Um, so, but the, the third degree was the term of art that they used really to describe what they'd done to Juan. So that's kind of where I came up with it. So you're trying to highlight the uh, torch. Well, it's sort of what it's about. I mean, the, 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 what, what the, the book, it started out to be about a murder, and what it really wound up being about was this guy and how he was treated by the police and what the country did to make sure that didn't happen again. So that's kind of, I, I figured that really was the focus of the book. That's why I named it that. John. With your public health friend, I'm going to ask you about, um, you, you said his stomach issues after the 1918 flu played into the story, but I didn't tell him that. Yeah, no, that's right. He, um, he, uh, what he was left with after the flu was um, colitis, really bad colitis. In fact, one of the, um, one of the, the uh, probably the most helpful testimony for him in the trial was the doctor who had examined him in jail. And he was asked, um, would, would Juan have known what he was signing when he signed the confession? And the doctor said yes. And then the attorneys asked, I think it was the judge actually who asked him, would he have, would he have actually signed something that, that um, uh, essentially condemned himself to death in or just in order to get the questioning to stop? And the doctor said, yes, I think he probably would have. Um, that's how bad the pain was. And once he got to jail, um, he, they had to bring him into the Red Cross room. They had to carry him out of his cell. He was in such excruciating pain. He was lucky he didn't die because almost everybody did who got the, got the influenza back then. So uh, the poli what the police were opportunistic about it. They took advantage of the fact that he was in pain to essentially up the pressure on him. It, was, it wasn't nice and it wasn't right. Edie, hi. Hi. If someone can be charged, do they have proper notes in jail? Do they have what? Sorry. Progress notes in jail. I mean, the documentation. Uh, I didn't. I didn't find um, this. 
The Washington DC archives are kind of a mess and I could not find specifics about his arrest or about his jail time. I have, however, found other stuff in the, in the National Archives. For anybody who was in the federal penitentiaries, there's great records. I, there's, I've, I've gotten files this thick about people. I, I know who visited them. I know what their, 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 their health was like. I know how many sheets of paper they ordered in order to write letters to their lawyers. I mean, those, those and, and photos and stuff like that, those, doc, those are great. But DC, I couldn't find them. Um, uh, um, these, these would not be on microfiche. These, if, they, if they existed at all, they'd be, still be on paper, and you'd go to the archives and find them. But th this, I was not lucky on this. Um, yeah. Just wondering, who, who brought the case to the Supreme Court? Um, that's a good question. His, his attorneys, oh, I, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that. Um, he got a new uh, legal team uh, to take it to the court. And one of the things they did was they, um, it's not clear how these lawyers were paid. I'm not sure they were paid much. Because although one had, one's mother had plenty of money, she wasn't told. So they weren't getting money from mom in Shanghai. And Juan's checking account was down to about $34. So it wasn't coming from him either. I suspect either the court paid them or they weren't paid. But he had some friends. And one of the things that, uh, that they did was they got John W. Davis to serve on his team. Now, John W. Davis... Um, was former, I think, Solicitor General, former ambassador to the UK. He was a big man around Washington. And while he was defending Juan, ostensibly, he was running for president. Um, he was nominated by the Democratic Party, I think it was 1924, on the 104th ballot to run against Calvin Coolidge. And he lost by gargantuan proportions. Um, but he was a big man. And I think actually it was on the strength of his name that the court moved it right up on the calendar and considered the case fairly quickly. He did not, however, appear before the court. In fact, there's a letter from him that says, you know, I didn't think I was signing up for an appearance, but you know, if you really think that my duties of charity are not exhausted, I guess I'll do it. Um, but he got all the credit after the thing was over. And he really hadn't done that much on it but lend his name. It was his journeyman attorneys that really did it. Ira. Scott, did you find any evidence that Brandeis was looking for a case like this? Um, because the previous cases had all focused on police conduct. And the facts of this case were so unusual. The police didn't torture him. They didn't hurt him. They just, as you said, took advantage of a situation. So it was a perfect case for deciding voluntariness. Right. Which is also the, just to be clear, as part of the Fifth Amendment, is a privilege against compelled self-incrimination. Right. I did not find specific evidence of that. I don't actually know why the court took the case. Nobody ever really said it. Um, <clears throat> I suspect, though, that it had been a quarter of a century since the Bram case, and it was really clear that the Bram case, this is the one that said promises or threats, it was really clear that the matter was not settled. There was a lot of national debate going on about torture and about the third degree. And I think the court, I suspect anyway, that the court wanted to take the case to kind of settle it, which of course it didn't do, but I, I, that's my sense. And as far as Miranda was concerned, there's, there's a lot of evidence that they, they were looking for several cases specifically so that they could rule on that. But this was not an activist court under, under tab. That's all I know. You probably know more about it than I do. Well, what happened, I think you put this in the book too, is after the case, Congress, Created the Wickersham Commission yes. to look into. There's a whole chapter on that. Right. That was really the beginning of the end. 
of the third degree, mostly because there were so many scandals. Uh, people have been tortured and innocent people were convicted. And, and what was interesting about the Wickersham report was, I mean, the Wickersham Commission, this is 1930, they were supposed to really look at prohibition. That was their ostensible mandate. They, but they wrote, they, they, they really, they really um, expanded the mandate. There were like 13 different reports of this. This was just one. And the one case I've occupied like three pages in the report. And, I, and as you say, I think it was most powerful because he wasn't tortured. It was a slam dunk if they had if they'd given him the rack and the thumbscrew. But this was a much more subtle thing, and I think it was an opportunity for them to make a make a, a bigger point. Chinese Education Mission, and I know Ed Rose is here who wrote a great book on it. Um, but obviously, this is not Yu Wing's Chinese Education Mission. Can you just share a little? It's bit not. They were they, they used the exact same name. It was called the Chinese Educational Mission, but it was not the same organization. However. Xiang uh, Sung Wan's father was one of the original Ronghong students who was part of the original Chinese education mission. In fact, Ed and I had a debate about what the character was for his Chinese name. You may not remember that. We went back and forth on that. Um, his father went back to China, moved to Tianjin, um, had three children, and then promptly, four children, I think, promptly died. Um, and, that's when, and then that's why Wan was raised without a father. So there was actually a connection. But this was a separate effort to bring Chinese students to the United States to study. The second big one, actually. Not very original name. No, it wasn't an original <laughs> name. They could have come up with something else. And I'm not sure if in Chinese it was the same, but I know that was what it was in English. And mission being DC is not a, it, it just seems like right. Margo? Have any of your books been published in China? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, there, I, I think this one has a chance. My friend, uh, Mr. Belkin, thinks it has a chance among, um, among attorneys and, uh, and judges, maybe. No, I don't think this will be a popular book in China, but it might be, it might be uh, they might have an, an audience. Uh, two of the books are in the process of translation, but I don't think they'll be out this year. I think probably next year. The, uh, the First Chinese American and also the Tong Wars. Um, there's a Chinese publisher that has bought the rights to them, and they're in the process of translating them. But I haven't seen anything. It's been a while. I'm hoping. Um, I came in late, but I was wondering, um, our uh, Asian American Bar Association has Bowery enactments. This um, case that you were talking about, was there a um, More or less, yes. Um, the... Um, <clears throat> There's a very, very, very detailed summary with a lot of verbatims because it was prepared for the Supreme Court for the appeal. In my experience, if there's no appeal, there's generally not a transcript for these really old cases. But there's enough that it's pretty damn close to a transcript. You can buy it actually on Amazon. Um, it's about this thick. Um, and it's Yang Sung Wan versus the United States. Uh, yes. Well, the Supreme Court, the documentation for the Supreme Court case. Um, but, it, but essentially what that is is the transcript of the trial and what they call the exceptions. In those days, that's what they called them. They would take an exception to a ruling of the judge and it was noted. And the exceptions usually formed the basis for the appeal. And there were a zillion exceptions in the, in the Juan case, but the only one that really was important was the confession. And in the first appeal, they, they raised them all. But by the time they went to the Supreme Court, they had a focus really on that one. Well, I guess my question also is that one spoke very good English. It wasn't necessary. I suspect, and I'm trying to think of any of the other, I think all the Chinese who testified were English speakers. As far as I know, not. Any one final question before we wrap up, and we can have one-on-one -on -one time? Uh, 
And so I'm really curious. Uh, we, we're talking about you know Juan really traveling widely, widely between New York and, and uh, DC, and, and the level of, of uh, education English ability. I, I know very little about this period. How? What were the social circles they moved in like? Was there a very tight Chinese community? Were they, you know, really connected to the schools they were being educated in? Yeah. Um, um, I think both of those things are true. This was, first of all, these were very different Chinese from the Chinatown Chinese. The Chinatown Chinese were mostly from Guangdong. They were mostly shopkeepers or, or, or from rural areas of China before they came over. They were living in Chinatown. These guys were, in the, 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 the three men especially who were killed, were diplomats. They were from Shanghai. They spoke English. They came over first class. They didn't, they're not in the cargo holds of the ships. And I think they ate in the Chinese restaurants in, in Chinatown, and maybe they sent their laundry there, but they didn't fraternize with the Cantonese particularly. They did, however, fraternize with other diplomats in the, in the diplomatic corps in Washington, D.C. Now, in the case of Awan, he went to school in Ohio and claimed he went to Columbia. I don't think he really did. Um, he definitely had Caucasian or Western friends um, and spoke English with them. And there are some examples of um, uh, the night that... Um, uh, uh, the, the night of Chinese New Year, Wu was going out with some friends and one of them was white and one of them was Chinese and they were at a chop suey joint on Pennsylvania Avenue. So my sense is that they did integrate, this, the, this group of Chinese did integrate fairly well. But they weren't Chinese Americans, remember. They were Chinese Chinese who were going to go back to China. That was always the plan.